Welcome to GovCast, connecting with federal IT's top decision makers. I'm Alexander Bolova, production lead at GovCIO Media and Research. With me today is Deputy Editor Kate Macri. Hi, Kate. Hi, Alex. You had the chance to talk with Jay Bonsi, CTO at the Department of the Air Force. How'd it go? It went really well. I was really excited to talk to Jay some more about data interoperability and how the Air Force is kind of leading the way in terms of some cloud modernization efforts and integration with the Joint Warfighting Cloud Capability Contract. Similar to my interview with Don Yeski, these are both interviews basically about the same topics. I wanted to hear from both of them about this, Don Yeski being the CTO of the Department of the Navy. So I've talked to Jay a couple of times before for an article back in February, and then also a gov focus like a month or two ago. So it's always great to talk to Jay because he's really in the weeds with the technology and really knows what's going on at the Air Force. And so, yeah, it was a fun conversation. Yeah. And if listeners haven't already, we definitely encourage you to go back and listen to our Don Yeski interview from two weeks ago, as well as to look at our GovFocus interview with Jay Bonsi. So before we listen to your conversation, are there any highlights that you'd like to point out in advance? Anything that you want to call attention to for our listeners? I feel like towards the end of the interview, there was some really interesting discussion around the role that the CTO has at the Department of the Air Force and how he kind of has to bridge the gap between some of the more bureaucratic pieces of the Pentagon and airmen on the ground or in the air, I guess, <laughs> with real problems that they need solved by someone in a position like his. So it was really cool to like hear about how he navigates that and what that kind of looks like. It just, it sounds like a very big job as CTO, but it was also interesting to hear about that because I feel like in a lot of ways, he's carrying on the legacy of Lauren Knossenberger, the outgoing CIO at the Air Force, because that was her whole thing was cutting through the bureaucracy of the Pentagon to get real solutions into the hands of airmen and like solve their problems with IT and really elevate IT as something that is important that we should be spending money on, which as a lot of people know, like IT budgets tend to be the first things to get slashed when making budget cuts. So yeah, it was really interesting to hear about his perspective on that and kind of how he's continuing the work that Lauren started to do. Yeah. And I'm just full of shameless plugs today, but we also had a recent exit interview with Lauren Knossenberger as part of an event. You can listen to both that podcast as well as watch the interview by going to our website. But with all of that in mind, let's take a listen to your conversation with Jay Bonsi. To start off our conversation today, Jay, I would love to hear from you about what you've been working on this year in terms of like your IT priorities. And I'm really interested in hearing about where the Air Force is at in terms of the joint warfighting cloud capability, how that integrates with all of your other ongoing cloud efforts that you've already been working on, and kind of what you guys are looking at this year in terms of new investments, new modernization initiatives that you're working on. All right, great. So for my personal focus this year has been really taken up by the different uh, pillars of zero trust. 
Um, zero trust is a, is a huge buzzword. It's an absolutely massive umbrella of a lot of type of capabilities. We have a lot of responsibilities uh, set out to us by DOD CIO um, and our CPG uh, capabilities plan and guidance. But what this means for us is that it's not a product, it is an architectural imperative. And the amount of uh, execution coordination and uh, kind of government pre-integration, that blocking and tackling work uh, to make sure that the capabilities are sequenced in the right order and we know who's doing them and who has to talk to whom in order to be able to, to make it work is, is pretty staggering. So for instance, uh, we just started our uh, ITAS wave one uh, contract after a significant delay. And now that we are moving uh, out on that capability, we know that there are zero trust capabilities embedded in that endpoint. We know that that has to talk to the ICAM capabilities provided by a different team. And we know that that has to integrate with the network, which is provided by all the different match comms and, and more centrally in the future through our base infrastructure modernization effort. And so just making sure that all the parties uh, kind of know who their left and their rights are, make sure that we have a clear vision and sequencing um, for how we're going to uh, deliver those capabilities has been key. Um, we put together a Zero Trust and ICAM roadmap, which we initially published this year and kind of unveiled at the Rocky Mountain Cyberspace Symposium. We're publishing the 1.1 version of those capabilities uh, somewhere in along the end of June. And uh, that will allow us to incorporate all the feedback that we've gotten from industry, our uh, MILDAT partners, uh, and our internal stakeholders about the progress that we've made in the last quarter. And that means we'll be tacking on the first quarter of uh, 25 um, into that as our execution roadmap becomes a little bit more clear. And so we're um, excited to have uh, that uh, that engagement um, and that transparency um, with industry and others uh, in the top of the space, because it's, it's huge that there are a lot of lessons to learn uh, from industry and from other very large organizations, even outside of the government who uh, try to tackle zero trust for a really massive set of organizations. I mean, in the same way that the military is like any corporation that's done a lot of mergers and acquisitions, you know, we have different technologies and different pieces uh, yeah. across the uh, across the world and making sure that we can make that more even um, and make that more and have more consistent outcomes across the department, I think is, is key to zero trust and, you know, uh, sort of JADC2 in the future. The, the specific area of focus for me um, for the last couple of months has been talking about the future of resilient uh, communications. And this is key to our uh, battle network um, uh, with our C3 uh, BM partners, the new PEOs uh, stood up under uh, General Luke Cropsey. They're putting together uh, the infrastructure necessary to run our command and control uh, networks. And it's incumbent that the enterprise work with them in lockstep so that um, we can be there to scale and extend um, the things that they're putting together in 23 and 24. And so it's been a great partnership. We're making excellent progress. And we're going to publish our roadmap uh, for how we're going to get that done um, in conjunction with our AFMC, LCMC partners, um, the C, ACC, that entire group. And we're going to put something out, we believe, in the middle of uh, June on that. And so we'll be talking about that uh, more once it hits the SASIAN website. Yeah. So I'm interested in the relationship between Zero Trust and JADC2, and JWCC. Could you explain for me a little bit Sure. those three big, huge topics? And yeah, kind of there's a lot of acronyms. A lot, yeah. a, lot of, a lot of acronyms and a lot of activity going on in the joint world. Um, that's one of the kind of key challenges of 
of, of this role for me is to make sure that we are telling a clear story mm-hmm. about the individual pieces that are that inform each other and are loosely connected. But then, you know, how do we really take that down to execution? So let's start with uh, JWCC. You know, JWCC is a an effort uh, by uh, DoD CIO, um, DISIS Hack, and others to to provide a consistent buying vehicle to allow for competition and aggressive discounting on cloud. And we are uh, working um, with that program office uh, to figure out how to integrate it uh, into our uh, existing Cloud One program office. And so uh, for us, that focus is really going to be um, on the the secret and top secret areas in the beginning uh, to be able to make sure that we can continue to access uh, high quality cloud environments um, at the secret and top secret levels uh, where they have done the kind of contract legwork necessary. Um, some of those clouds have uh, have their beginnings in, inside the Intel community and having a centrally established relationship between the DoD cloud offices and the IC cloud offices is a huge administrative uh, hurdle off our back. And so we're incredibly uh, grateful to uh, DoD CIO for having uh, pulled that together. Um, we are um, going to be working with them to make sure that we continue to drive best practices around aggressive pricing. Um, to make sure that we get uh, the best discount uh, for uh, the department and, f- and for the taxpayer. But by and large, uh, JWCC is uh, at its current time um, uh, that cloud buying vehicle to make it you know, sort of easy and consistent across the board. Ourselves and uh, CRME both have established cloud programs. So we are looking um, together about how we integrate that buying option into our um, current space. In terms of how that relates to uh, JADC2, um, JWCC and, and cloud broadly is a part of the underlying infrastructure. And, and we know that in a conflict situation, it's gonna be incumbent on us to be able to scale rapidly. Um, and the, the kind of hyperscaling might of our commercial cloud industry partners is gonna be truly the only way to do that. You know, We're never gonna be able to have enough hardware sitting around in a depot. We're never gonna have the pipes we need just laying around. And so um, making sure that we partner early and strongly with those, those true hyperscalers um, is gonna be a key to success. But layered on top of that is where the additional hard work comes in. And that is to be able to make sure that we have the application and data interchange standards between all of the joint partners uh, to be able to get to a place where um, we can move data back and forth seamlessly, that we can move um, intelligence back and forth seamlessly, orders back and forth seamlessly, and, and that's that. That's that is that that sort of above the infrastructure. That application tier uh, challenge is the one that um, that is going to be the real struggle. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It sounds like data interoperability is like really the key for JADC two to to be JADC two. I guess. Yeah. And where do you see JWCC? I guess helping to facilitate that kind of data interoperability. And I'm also interested in the the cybersecurity piece of that, you know, because you have to have secure data exchange between the services, combat commands. Sure. Um, and so I guess my question is, how do you see JWCC helping to facilitate greater data interoperability between the Air Force and combatant commands and Navy, Army, like all the different uh, players? And what role does the zero trust initiatives play in helping to make that reality? Sure, I'm, I don't want to over or undersell the role of uh, JDBCC or, or you know by extension cloud service providers 
uh, in JADC2. Um, they're going to be incredibly important for us to um, have infrastructure that is consistent. Um, they, they have a service model that will allow us to uh, deploy capabilities in a more rapid way. Um, so that's the, the, the huge advantage of cloud and that infrastructure's code and the DevSecOps um, revolution that's sweeping across the department uh, and across our major weapon systems. Uh, it's going to be key to having the agility and flexibility to end up in a consistent place uh, for JADC2 in cloud and the, the infrastructure flexibility and the underlying services of the cloud are absolutely key to get there. For, in particular, JWCC at the higher classification levels um, will be acting as a, a data uh, layer uh, where the clouds are going to be able to talk to the other clouds and within the cloud enclaves themselves. Uh, at the end of the day, clouds these days, large uh, commercial infrastructure providers, whether or not they're providing bespoke government capabilities or not, are, at the end of the day, carriers. They are right. uh, huge telecommunication giants on top of that. And we know that the uh, telecommunications backbone of these major cloud providers is going to be a place where data interchange happens at the, the classification levels where it needs to. And so we are fully looking to take advantage um, of that strategy to bolster the DISA provided um, and the COCOM provided uh, telecommunications um, elements. And so um, that is going to be a part of our uh, architecture, our design and our strategy uh, going forward. Um, when it comes to the bringing people together. There are provisions within the JWCC contract around making sure that data can flow more freely around uh, setting standards for resilience. And those are um, huge things that that uh, contract office is taking on for us, for the department. And, and uh, as a consumer of that, we are quite grateful. And now as it, as it relates to zero trust, answer your zero trust question, the zero trust initiatives are a are going to be challenging because we are still very nascent in everyone's zero trust delivery. And the way that most zero trust architectures and products work is that there are not necessarily emergent standards on it. And so this is part of the government pre-integration challenge that we sort of alluded to up front, which is that it is going to require a ton of planning to make sure that our consumption of a product makes sense, but then we also have an answer for you know, joint and co-com environments so that uh, a person with a Navy laptop can uh, work on uh, an Air Force, an Air Force uh, application or an Air Force data set. So all of that is, is going to take a long time product-wise uh, to be able to get right. The things that we are doing right now uh, in the early days are making sure that that our data formats are as internally consistent as possible, and that uh, we are using you know the same messaging formats and uh, are getting applications ready to be able to speak the same formats of data. And so we have a lot of joint uh, work that's going into defining those standards. But we know at the end of the day, as an enterprise service provider, that having a good, strong data fabric that's going to be able to translate messages between the two is going to be key because we don't know what maturity each of the joint partners are going to come into this environment with. And so um, we could be very far behind. Some other partner could be very far ahead, or we're all going to be each in slightly different states. And so to make that work, we have to, that flexibility is a built into requirement mm -hmm. to um, what we're putting together in data fabric and some of our other data interchange initiatives.
Yeah, I feel like that's something I've been hearing a lot from folks across DOD, what you were just talking about, you know, like, how do we, how are we going to securely exchange information if, you know, one of us is more ahead in their zero trust journey than the other, for example, or, you know, like what you were saying, like someone, you know, can take a Navy laptop and sign into Air Force Cloud or something like that. And one of the ideas that I've heard floated and I'm sure you've heard people talk about this, maybe this is something you think as well, is DOD should maybe have a universal like single sign-on capability so that no matter, you know, which component or combatant command you're part of, like you can sign in once and get the information that you're cleared to have that you need to do the mission. And it can like uh, compensate for potential like security disparities, stuff like that. Is that something that you guys have thought about, talked about, is that uh, thought about that. We've thought about that a ton. Yeah. Um, There, there are a lot of challenges and this isn't a DOD problem. This is like any large organizational problem to, to be able to say, okay, everybody kind of stop what you're doing and adopt this new universal, you know, enterprise of enterprise capabilities. The DOD itself is unique in its size and scope. um, and, And faced with a truly global um, set of challenges. But outside of admiring the problem, there are steps that we're taking in order to be able to get there so that we know, for instance, um, we're pulling together the next generation of our identity services, um, what we're kind of calling uh, AFID 2.0. And as we begin to design that, we know, hey, um, you know, there are future federation and convergence use cases we're going to need, right? And so flexibility is going to have to be built into the design of, of how we pull this together and, and how um, we work with the Army and the Navy and the Fourth Estate to get to, again, a consistent uh, consistent end state. To get to that all-in enterprise of enterprises, there is a lot of flattening that has to be done in terms of, again, agreeing on data standards, right? So it's not JADC2 or targeting or weapons data, it's identity data, right? And making sure that we're using the same names and we have the same fields and, and all of our relying parties know what to expect. So there is the unification of service designs. Um, we are talking in small communities about how to get that right and about um, we are converging on very similar design patterns right now uh, so that we can get to an eventually consistent altogether place. And what that's going to allow us to do is we need to be able to uh, innovate locally and partner globally. And that's going to be kind of the model that we need to, to really make it work. Um, so in that sense, Trying to jump to an all-in DoD single sign-on uh, DoD OI to ICAM uh, solution today it isn't feasible just on the scale of enablement that would have to happen. Yeah, you know, to to have to have like a centralized identity office that could take. Let's assume there's like ten thousand applications in the DoD, right? To be able to right. pull ten thousand applications through, it, you know, we'd be talking like fifty apps onboarding a day to make any real progress. I mean, it's it's just a staggering. Uh, amount of um, just a staggering amount of work that yeah. you need to do to, to be able to make it happen. But but knowing that we have to get there, we're looking to federate at the data level. Okay. Uh, we all have a global credential in the common access card. And so we can federate at the credential level. And that's that's really how we do a lot of the federation today, right? If we all just, if we all work together and, and, and converge more and more on the PIV standard, which is largely accomplished, then that will get us there and, and we'll be able to get there in a pinch. And I think it won't allow us to do anything much more sophisticated until we get more services nailed down to get to that real true 
you know, all in one zero trust, but we'll be able to figure out how to get by without any of the parties having to take major risk to get there. So I, I feel good about I feel good about our architectural approach. I don't think that we're truly developing anything in a vacuum or in a silo. And again, having the ICAM roadmap allows us to be pretty open source about what we're doing and when. And if there are opportunities or possibilities to partner, like we're partnered with the army on a, on a great many things, then we're certainly going to uh, take those up so that that gap to close to converge in the future will be much smaller. Sure. So what challenges do you foresee coming up over the next year as you guys are working to kind of keep modernizing in the cloud while also participating in JWCC? For us, our Cloud One journey um, has been really strong, um, and we've uh, we've surpassed a uh, hundred apps a few months ago. They had a big uh, had a big get together for that. As we look out to where the next hundred are, we're looking at applications that may not be as ready to go to cloud. And this is a little bit of a, of the problems of of this type of a program or or this type of a enablement um, arc where at the very beginning, you're going to get, you know, they're maybe not all in the most technically um, sophisticated place, but they're all the ones who are very eager to go to cloud. And then you get the ones that are a little bit less eager and needed more help or needed a chance to really be convinced on it. What's going to happen as we go through zero trust and uh, as we start to discover more and more of what's on our network, um, we're going to find hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of assets that are going to need a real true home. And the discussions that we're having now is what does that mean for cloud one if we're going to have to take hundreds of applications that maybe aren't in the best place, either from a security or an ATO perspective. And um, we're still grappling with that. That's going to be one of the really core challenges uh, for us. And zero trust is going to be the thing that breaks a lot of applications dependence on the network. And that means it's going to unearth these capabilities and we're going to have to have a, a series of options for them to go to, whether or not it's a digital platform uh, like a SharePoint or um, you know, a SaaS provider uh, or some kind of workflow platform, right? There's going to be lots of options that we have to go through before saying, okay, this is bespoke code that has to go to cloud. And so that decision-making process is something that we have to set up and make sure that the enterprise is properly messaging and is ready to support. Um, we're also pulling together guidance for what to do with applications that maybe don't have proper ATOs. And so we're trying to think through that problem set as well. So there, there's both technical and business and uh, policy implications to the, the cloud of dust that we know we're going to get uh, kick up as we begin to kind of sweep the basement out and find uh, all of those applications. Gotcha. Interesting. So what role do you see the software factories playing in all of this, especially when we're talking about JWCC and that kind of shift? Yeah, uh, software factories uh, play an incredibly important role because they're the ones who are most structurally with agility. Mm. And so all the software factories have set themselves up to say, okay, we're going to be modern software development houses. Uh, we are going to work in an agile fashion. We're going to do strong backlog management. We're going to um, receive user feedback. We're going to uh, we're going to try and shorten the distance between developer and operator as much as as much as what is possible, um, given classification 
uh, constraints. And then where that sets them up for success is that we don't know all the requirements for JADC2. We have lots of very smart people who are working on uh, planning and going after the things that we know and data standards and some application elements and, and kind of dreaming up architectures. But until we get further down into the meat of actually fusing these systems together and making sure that you know air planning system A can talk to Navy sensor system B right. um, and going through those use cases as prioritized um, by our um, by our theater um, commanders are you know the three component to figure out okay we know today that the number one requirement is agility it's the ability to rapidly respond to um, incoming data to uh, incoming operational conditions um, and that's that energy and that competency to be able to have contracting setups that enable that, to have people who are ready to turn on a dime and work on the new capability, to have the tooling in place to know how to respond to new application conditions. That baseline is the baseline we're going to need for JADC2, and I'm really glad that this has been underway for a number of years. We are going to have to continue to refine, continue to standardize, continue to figure out what the enterprise needs to support um, from the software factories, because they each do it a little bit differently today. Most of them are based upon our platform one capabilities, and uh, many of them use uh, cloud one or a direct contract with um, one of the, the cloud service providers. So just try to pull that together more to find the things that we can take off of the software factories plate and let them try and get them as much as possible out of the infrastructure business and try and keep them in the agility, responsiveness, uh, DevSecOps business. That That's that's the kind of give and take and, and where we need to be from a department. Gotcha. Okay. So I wanted to switch gears a little bit and hear a little bit about how you got to where you are at the Air Force. I know you have had a career in IT and tech for basically your whole career, right? Mm -hmm. You've been in this field. So I guess my first question is, what made you want to go into IT, which is, you know, I guess most people would consider probably one of the more boring careers that you could choose. Um, no, don't say that. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, what, what made you interested? So um, I I had always loved the the challenges and the puzzle of computing, right? And and to try and see like how system A worked with you know system B and growing up. I think everyone has. A, I grew up with my family's computer series of stories where they sort of tinkered around and, and learned how things worked and took things apart and stared for hours at the disk defragment or wondering what that actually did. Um, but uh, for myself, I, I grew up um, kind of through a computer science background. Um, I was uh, I was a programmer. I went up through kind of software QA. And then I ended up um, through you know, a series of contacts in the, the open source world. And so um, I worked in um, various open source projects through uh, Debian and, and others and ended up in web infrastructure, um, just broadly, like early post.com um, web infrastructure and scalability and, and, you know, in support of the open source world. And, and from there, uh, ended up at uh, a company by the name of Akamai um, that does um, internet scale content distribution. I learned a lot there. I spent uh, 14 years there learning really just how the internet works and how the internet scales and, and learned to tune my skills as a person who understands very large systems, understands how to communicate 
um, very uh, the intricacies of very large systems, what the the kind of social and and organizational implications of those systems were, and grew up from an individual contributor to be kind of a senior director where I was leading um, what happened to be the public sector business unit. Did not at all intend um, to end up um, in a in a government job, and you know the opportunity came up to uh, to kind of serve and, and make an impact on on the government side, and I was thought like do okay there. I think I could figure that out, right? Um, and um, and for me, it was always the challenge of how do you effectively lead an organization by influence? How do you, you know, take one of the map, one of the largest scalability problems in the world, right? The the cybersecurity and integrate and technical integration of the components inside of the Department of Defense, and and get that to a consistent excellent set of outcomes like we we watch um military structures struggle because they aren't set up to deliver it they're not set up to deliver technology and they're not set up to deliver integrated outcomes which is really what we see struggling with uh jad ct broadly and so um so i thought like oh that'd be an interesting problem set and so i took that job or this job i guess <laughs> a couple <laughs> of years ago um it'll be two years in august it's been an absolutely wonderful experience and, and I, I am learning kind of the the lessons that I wanted to learn, right? The communication and you know stakeholder management and, and each of those things. And so it's been it's been a journey to learn how to be a CTO. There's the, the, the title CTO itself means so many different things in so many organizations and, and is very much defined um, by your personal interests. Um, sometimes you know you're leading a product, other times you're leading IT delivery. And and this is you know as as a part of the, the office of the chief information officer under uh, Lauren Knossenberger, this is very much a delivery focused. And so, so yeah, it's, it's been a, it's been a lot of really great lessons about the culture of large organizations and how they're truly no different than mm -hmm. any other absolutely gigantic corporation. Yeah. I was going to ask, what's the most surprising thing that you've learned as a CTO and one of the, maybe the biggest organization in the world? Yeah, um, it's surprising to me the cultural implications of power distance. Mm. That's one of the most interesting things um, in that, you know, you come into a, a government role, especially a, a military um, military government role, and yeah. the hierarchy is very hierarchical. Right. And my job is unique in that I have to talk to, you know, people who are working at that AO level. Right. right, your captains, your lieutenant colonels, mm -hmm. and then I have to be able to turn around and and talk to you know ones through four stars and yeah. say this is what's actually going on, this is what it means, these are the decisions we have to make, and sometimes it's leading decision making for lower level technical teams, sometimes it's leading strategic communications, and so every day is a little bit different, uh, but but that gap in the organization between what senior leaders are told or what senior leaders understand and what the technical level AO people are saying across, especially in the Air Force where we are across all these different delivery tribes. That's very interesting to me how that gets constructed and how best to make it so the, these organizations with slightly different mandates and slightly different roles and, and areas where they, they you know, excel in, in different areas and in different ways uh, to make that consistent and and to make that hum is is has has been such a, a an education. Yeah. Um, 
but that, you know, just uh, trying to understand the kind of culture, the long-term culture of public sector uh, employees and public sector organizations has been incredibly interesting. Yeah. Would love to hear a little bit more about the role culture plays in DOD and the Air Force in particular when it comes to, you know, trying to move the needle on some of these technology initiatives that you're in charge of, um, especially when it comes to, you know, translating what people of lower rank, like farther down the hierarchy are saying and needing and communicating that to senior leadership and what that looks like. So one of the key challenges in the Air Force and the DoD broadly is about the IT delivery value stream. Mm -hmm. And uh, something that we need to continue to focus on through this year and ongoing is, is the digital transformation of the IT process itself. We talk a lot about digital transformation for mission systems and for applications and for other types of business processes, but the IT delivery process itself needs that. And what we see culturally is that we've assigned these roles to individuals and say, okay, you're in charge of strategy. And then once that strategy is done, you box it up and you hand it over to the requirements people. And the requirements people box it up and write requirements and they box that up and they write a, a concept of operations around it. And that concept of operations goes to acquisition, which sources something and buys it. And, and what happens is when you have this departmental look at parts in the value stream, you don't you don't end up delivering something that has an even and well understood end to end delivery. And this is really hard in something like zero trust because it has to touch all these different things. There isn't this isn't like an airplane where you say, okay, we need the airplane to fly this high, be this maneuverable, take this much gas and have this many weapons on it. Okay, yeah. next person, right? And so IT is much more flexible and much uh, much more uh, malleable than that. There's many, many different types of solutions. There's many, many different ways to be able to, to get at something. And so the cultural impacts of having these siloed departments is incredible on the outcome of IT. It's, it's based on something called Conway's Law which is this ancient observation from like the 60s or 70s that says computer systems mimic the organizational structures that created them, which is to say, and this is the whole thing behind JADC2. If you have two components that were designed far apart and the people didn't talk to each other, the things they build won't talk to each other. And that is that observation is true in the 70s, it's true now. Yeah. And, so, um, and so part of the challenge of bending that culture to um, to get better outcomes is sometimes you have to better align the people. So some of the instances that we're doing right now is to say, okay, let's get everybody into the same JIRA instance. Let's not think of ourselves as Air Combat Command and the Office of the CIO and uh, Lifecycle Management Center. Let's think of ourselves as one flat IT delivery team where we have different specializations. And this is this is difficult, because in a military organization, you know, we're not, we don't, we don't tell people to emphasize flow, right? The flow of the movement of work, right? We tell people to emphasize uh, roles and responsibilities, right? And it seems like defining roles and responsibilities it is is important to be able to make sure that you have the course units of how things should interact. 
but really making sure that you're getting the blocking and tackling of IT delivery execution correct. That's more important than absolutely anything. Yeah. And, and that's that's what's going to that's what's going to uh, produce good outcomes. That's going to um, produce uh, better, more integrated systems. They're going to produce more secure systems. And one of the things that we found is it's it's going to produce systems that have better user experience. Yeah. And this is like this is one of our huge, huge, huge lessons learned from the last year or so is that integrating and flattening different organizations solve user experience problems that much faster yeah. because you don't have to you don't have to take a ticket and be like oh my laptop is running slow oh uh, we're going to take that to the help desk and maybe the help desk doesn't know so they file a ticket uh-huh. with engineering and maybe engineering doesn't know or maybe this person hasn't moved and the time because of the cost of moving that workload is so high the time it takes to actually resolve things is is really is really tough. And so we try and get people to think less about wrapping ideas in PowerPoint, right? Where you have to like give it to somebody else and that person interprets it. That that's a high cost, that's a high cost operation. So yeah. we're really, really, really trying to get to a place where that's a lot flatter. Um, and that's a huge challenge. Yeah. I think people are starting, I think people are starting to see and understand just the volume of work we have in front of us for zero trust. Mm-hmm. And that reducing that transmission cost of ideas back and forth between departments is is really the only way to to make progress. Yeah. So uh, before we wrap this up here, what are your thoughts on your plan, basically, for addressing some of these challenges? Like just off the top of your head. Uh, so I uh, for for me, we started uh, we started with the roadmap as an outcome focused view. So the the exercise to pull together a roadmap is to say what's important, what are the what are the early um, the early prototypes, the early innovators in the space, uh, what are we going to do to support them, how do those innovators graduate, and then where do things need to come together and in what time, and what are those tasks, and and that outcome focused view is meant to sort of say okay let's just focus on the stuff we have to do and we can take that to the left and make sure our strategy says the right thing. And we can take that to the right and make sure our requirements um, say that thing. And so starting there has been really good to clarify the things that we need to do in Zero Trust and ICAM in the areas that we've we've done. But, but we shouldn't have to do that, right? From there, what we're trying to do is to go wide into an agile process to make sure that people are handling each of those elements in a way that is, is properly modeled and is flat and is being tracked in um, in an all-in-one kind of workflow management platform. And from there, what that's going to allow us to do is eventually I want the roadmaps to just be a snapshot of that agile backlog, right? We should just be able to just sort of hit, hit print and all the milestones are there and it filters out ones maybe that are acquisitionally sensitive. And then we just sort of clean that up and hit publish. Mm-hmm. And if we're if we're properly if we're properly delivering on IT and we have every all of the the, the tasks and the strategic intent and uh, all of the milestones properly set up and tagged, then then that's how I know that we will have truly changed yeah. our IT delivery model. And so we've got the endpoint in mind, and now we're kind of working backwards into a process that will make that an automated deliverable. And so that's that's uh, that's my plan. Um, I think it'll probably take another eighteen months or so before that before we're pretty close on that. But the the buy-in from the community and the work to invest in that type of process to get to that place uh, is really heartening. We're making great progress on it. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. 
Well, I don't have any other specific questions for you right now. So I just wanted to ask, is there anything else that you wanted to add or talk about quickly before we wrap up? What I'll say is um, the DOD is headed towards a series of architectural discussions around coordination mm-hmm. for zero trust. And we're, because we are in so many different places about where each of where we're at on our journey, it's going to start to hold us up or, or force people to make decisions where it may be hard uh, to reverse those. And so, you know, I'm just going to, I'll just plug making sure that we're all pretty open about where we're at on our journey and we all are pretty clear eyed um, about how we're coming together. Um, so, for instance, one of the things that we struggle with is there's not going to be a consistent device health standard, right? If you use one device health product or one endpoint protection suite and another endpoint protection suite, you know, how do, how do I know that a Navy laptop contacting an Air Force service is fully patched? or is clean and, and you don't. And so so, um, so paradoxically getting to zero trust is gonna require a lot of trust and coordination between uh, the services to be able to define those standards, to be able to make sure that we are all understanding the nuances of the problem the same way. And uh, it's just gonna have to be continued discussion between the architects and, and technical stakeholders. And so we're getting there. Um, I'm impressed with the progress um, that everybody's made in a short period of time. Uh, it's never fast enough, but I'm I'm happy we're happy we're moving down. Yeah, well, it sounds like you've got your work cut out for you this year. Uh, a- absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time, Jay. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Jay. It's been a pleasure as always. Thank you, Kate. That was a fascinating conversation. Before we let our listeners go, are there any last takeaways you want to leave them with? I guess I would say the Air Force is doing some really cool stuff with cloud and with software development. And it's really cool to see how the software factories are supporting that effort. I really feel like the software factories are giving the Air Force kind of a leg up in terms of tech innovation compared to some of the other DoD components. And, you know, they're kind of a trendsetter in that regard because... The Marine Corps just launched their own software factory. The Navy has a software factory as well that was recently launched in the last like few years. And the Army software factory also was recently launched in the last few years. Again, all because of stuff that the Air Force has been doing. So I think one of the interesting things to look for will be how these different little like software factory innovation hubs in DOD are going to impact what JWCC looks like and how cloud kind of takes shape across all the military service branches and the fourth estate. Gotcha. Well, if there was one branch of the military I would expect to fully embrace cloud, it would be the Air Force. Get it? Because air, cloud, I, yeah. Please clap. Uh, (laughs) Anyways, thank you, Kate. Listeners can tune in next week for a brand new GovCast. But until then, that's all for today's episode. If you like what you heard, please leave a review on the podcast platform of your choice. Give us five stars. I'm Alexander Bolova. I'm Kate Macri. Thank you for listening.
GovCast, along with HealthCast and CyberCast, is a production of GovCIO Media and Research. For more podcasts and to check out the other shows, head to govciomedia.com. Watch out for new episodes released every Tuesday and Wednesday across our shows. You can follow all of them on your favorite podcast platform. And if you like what you heard, make sure to let us know by leaving a review. If you have any topics you think we should look into, contact us at newsletter at govcio.com.